So during the first phase of the pandemic, you know, about 4,000 years ago, I experimented with a type of online gathering, which I called cocktails and questions. So after getting myself a cocktail, five people in my circle would gather and, you know, they typically wouldn't know each other. And we all had six minutes to reflect on a question that I sent them through the day before. Now, they would talk without interruption. And the question that I sent was designed to provoke reflection and vulnerability and insight. Now, over the six months that I did this, I think I came up with some pretty great questions. But one of my favorites was this. What are you holding on to and why? Woven into that question is the insight that once we've taken hold of something, we become committed to it, often to an extent that's irrational, often to an extent that no longer serves us. And this is absolutely backed up by the science. I mean, perhaps you're wondering right now, well, what am I holding on to? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Sandra Saksha is the professor of management practice at Harvard Business School and author of a new book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, and Regain It. Now, one of the themes that you'll notice I come back to a lot with my guests because I'm fascinated by it, I think it's such a kind of core part of anybody's journey, is unique perspectives they have when they are both insiders and outsiders of the world that they inhabit. Or, you know, perhaps another way of saying the same thing is people who have traveled various and different worlds to get to where they are right now. Sandra's now at Harvard, but she grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And that gave her a very particular view of America. That sense of me coming up, you know, through uh, pretty tough schools uh, where they were always public schools and, and they were at times kind of scary places to be. Uh, where I had to navigate what it was like to, to to be me, to make friends, and to be in an environment where it wasn't the easiest to kind of figure out how to make it work. And uh, so, you know, I tried to be a good dancer. That helped. <laughs> uh, and uh, and not to be a jerk. Uh, and And that helped too. Okay, so you can probably stop the podcast right here because I think we found one of the deep secrets to a successful life be a good dancer, don't be a jerk. Now, Sandra's early life was a foundation upon which she began to build her understanding of the world. My elementary school, my high school uh, was half black and half Jewish. Uh, and it wasn't until I went to University of Michigan as an undergrad uh, that I actually was around lots of people with blonde hair and blue eyes. And I felt I had dropped into another universe. It was a jarring experience for her, but one that also gave her a new perspective on the world. From there, Sandra began her MBA doctorate and realized that as an outsider, she couldn't really teach business without first being inside business. So in her 20s, she decided to spend a year or two, that's all, learning from the inside. And of course, because that's the way it always goes, that one or two years turned into 20. But finally, Sandra found herself back at Harvard but now as a professor. She'd come a long way from Detroit's public education program, but one thing stayed true and real for her. I've always cared so much about how people relate to each other. I care about fairness. 
Uh, and, uh, and so that's shaped a lot of how I approach anything that I do. I asked Sandra, who planted that seed about connection and trust? It was a woman named Vicki Jackson. Uh, she was my debate partner. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we, we do, were part of the debate squad. We weren't particularly great as debaters, but we enjoyed sort of playing with our apparel. So she wore a black blazer, I'd wear a white blazer. Right. Uh, or we t- But she was the person who actually helped me bridge some of those gaps. And later on, she became the person when I was at the University of Michigan who said, you know what, we can't be as close friends as we were before right now. Uh, There's stuff going on in the Black Power movement that I've got to be part of. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's just where my life is. So, uh, you know, her ability to speak candidly with me about these very personal political issues uh, showed me that there is a way to do that. Right. You know, that that's possible. And so I'm very optimistic in that regard, possibly stupidly so, mm. uh, in thinking that there's a path that we have uh, to connect with each other, that we actually can build that path uh, if we want to. As well as that ability to speak candidly about the relationship, as well as dress snappily, um, <laughs> what, what else did she do that helped role model or maybe mentor or just build the bonds of that relationship because that's what you're talking about with trust is a sense of Mm. relationship yeah you know i i hadn't thought about that that's a really good question Uh, i think that uh what she did is you know she allowed us to build something together Uh, so, you know, it was always, you know, what can we do in this debate and what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, and it was sort of an early collaboration uh, in the sense that you can share work, mm-hmm. uh, you can do work together, uh, and that better things kind of come out of it if you do that. And that's why, for example, my book is co-authored. How did the trust stay central to the way you see the world as you embarked on your corporate career? Because I can imagine you know, it's one of the things that happened as, as a younger woman, but then you get into corporations and you're like, okay, I'm going to climb a ladder. I'm going to have some success. I'm going to try and make this organization better. Was trust always part of the conversation for you or did that take a more of a backseat then? So it took me a while to understand how it was playing out. Mm. Uh, so I joined a very famous institution. It was called Filene's Basement. Oh, yeah, I've been uh, to Filene's Basement. I bought suits from Filene's Basement. It's this great place where you go in and after a certain amount of time, they cut even more money off the off the price. So if you're smart and you get the timing just right, you get a total bargain for not that much money. Right. And so uh, so I learned about trust at two ways in Filing's <laughs> basement, many ways. Uh, so um, so one is so uh, so one of the things you have to do if you're an assistant buyer uh, is that you sat on what's called the return line and all the people mm-hmm. who wanted to return merchandise uh, to Filing's basement would bring it back. Uh, and because we had this automatic markdown plan, as you just said, the tickets all were stamped with a date in which it was bought. And I still remember having having to tell some woman that the date on her ticket hadn't happened yet right. this year, uh, which meant that the merchandise was like a year old. Right. 
Uh, and and so it was, and I, I hated being on the return line because it was, you know, you were up against people who, for a whole variety of reasons, uh, had decided that they had to return something. It was very painful. Yeah. And and so that was an early part of it. And it also, the whole this premise of Filene's Basin was based on trust. Right. So when you go, you know, this automatic markdown plan at work that uh, after 10 days, any price of something on the floor was reduced 25%, 10 days later, 25% more, yeah. 75%, and then eventually at the end of a month, it's given away to charity. So the bet that you're making as a customer is that we're not fiddling with the prices right. and the price tags, you know, that we're not going through the floor every night and just bringing everything back up to the original date. Right, right. Uh, and so it was one of these early examples of a business model mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that was based on the premise of trust, because you literally would have the same suit that you bought on the floor for two different prices, at least. Right. Uh, and you'd have to kind of trust that that's the way the system worked. Right. That's so interesting. How did that experience with Filene's, how did it shift or deepen your understanding of trust, particularly as you're scaling now from a single relationship to what it means to build trust as an organization or as a, as a brand? So, you know, the buyers, so much of the success of that system depended on buyers knowing how to do what they do, mm. which was to get merchandise out on the floor, not so much that it's all going to take a markdown right. and not so little that you lose sales. Mm. Uh, and so it was this system where everyone had to be extremely skilled uh, at kind of titrating merchandise coming out onto the floor. Uh, and you definitely had a sense in the stock people who worked on it and making sure that your uh, stock wasn't up to shape. I mean, it was it was actually a big team effort right. uh, to mount this thing. And because it was famous, because it was hugely successful, $650 a square foot, like when I was there in the 1970s, wow. uh, that that, that you just felt very proud to be part of this thing. Right. Is it, is it that, I mean, I'm curious, there's a lot going on there. Is it a sense of enabling a wide range of people to be kind of working at their best? Was that part of it? Or is it the, the success of the organization? Do they both need to be there? I'm just curious to know how that all plays out. So if you're in a business, any kind of business mm. organization, uh, you know, your success depends on how happy you are in your relationships with the people you work yeah. with. Sure. And, you know, we take that for granted, but if you've ever been someplace where that's not in place. <laughs> right. It's terrible. It's very that. hard it's, to it's do. Misery. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard to do good work. Mm. Uh, and and so there was that. There was also a sense, quite honestly, that you were helping people uh, who, for whatever reasons, couldn't afford the full price of something yeah. uh, to get a bargain. Totally. Uh, and, and so that was like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I can buy these mm. sweaters and I can put them out, you know, a fraction of the cost. And, and I feel pretty good about that because I'm helping these other people. So right. it kind of, that's in Thank both ways. Game. Yeah. Right. There's so much to talk about here, but I but I'm curious to know um, about the book you've chosen to read for us. So, what have you chosen, Sandra? Uh, so, uh, be prepared for something different. Yeah. Uh, so, this book is uh, it's the making of the atomic bomb. Wow. Uh, it's by Richard Rhodes, uh, and uh, it won the National Book Award, uh, National Book Critics Circle Award, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. 
Uh, and this is, it's huge. It's like, you yeah. know, you could, you know, I'm, I'm holding <laughs> it. It weighs it's, the same price as a atom- weight as an atomic bomb. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it's there, but it is, he's just a brilliant writer because usually if I'm not a history reader, uh, mm. and so I read history somewhat reluctantly, yeah. uh, and I was, I'll explain why I needed to read this book, uh, in a minute. Uh, but he, he writes like a journalist. Yeah, and so it's so interesting, and and you'll see when I read the excerpt that I do. So that's the book, uh, mm-hmm. and I chose it because of a story uh, that's in the book uh, about the role that Emperor Hirohito played uh, in helping bring World War II to a close. Mm, fascinating. You know, I looked this book up. You know, it's from the early sixties, and I looked at the the first page of blurbs, and it's like seventeen Nobel Prize winners. I'm like, okay, this is a man who knows how to get a good book blurb, if nothing else, um, and then went to win on these prizes. Um, so this sounds fascinating. Um, why don't you read us the two pages? Okay, great. Uh, and uh, for the Japanese speakers who may be listening, uh, I will do my best. I've been to Japan twice in my life, so I mm. will try to pronounce a few of these names properly, particularly the place names. Uh, and uh, so I'm asking for some forgiveness, uh, which is which I should have done more homework, quite honestly, to look up how to pronounce these names properly. Mm. So I confess to feeling that I'm being somewhat disrespectful in not knowing exactly how to pronounce the names. Strategic Air Force's Commander Carl Spotts cabled Loris Norstad on August 10th, proposing placing the third atomic bomb on Tokyo, where he thought it would have a salutary psychological effect on government officials. On the other hand, continuing area incendiary bombing disturbed him. I've never favored the destruction of cities as such, with all inhabitants being killed, he confided to his diary on August 11th. He had sent off 114 B-29s on August 10th. Because of bad weather and misgivings, he canceled a mission scheduled for August 11 and restricted operations thereafter uh, to attacks on military targets visually or under very favorable blind bombing conditions. American weather planes over Tokyo were no longer drawing anti-aircraft fire. Spots thought that fact unusual. The vice chief of the Japanese Navy's general staff, the man who had conceived and promoted the kamikaze attacks of the past year that had added to American bewilderment and embitterment to Japanese ways, crashed a meeting of government leaders on the evening of August 13th with tears in his eyes to offer a plan for certain victory, sacrifice 20 million Japanese lives in a special kamikaze attack. Whether he meant the 20 million to attack the assembled might of the allies with rocks or bamboo spears, the record does not reveal. A B-29 leaflet barrage forced the issue the next morning. Leaflet bombs showered what remained of Tokyo streets with the translation of Burns' reply. The Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal knew such public revelations would harden the military against surrender. He carried the leaflet immediately to the Emperor, and just before 11 that morning, August 14, 
Hirohito assembled his ministers and counselors in the Imperial Air Raid Shelter. He told them he found the Allied reply evidence of the peaceful and friendly intentions of the enemy and considered it acceptable. He did not specifically mention the atomic bomb, even that terrific Leviathan submerged in the general misery. Quoting him, I cannot endure the thought of letting my people suffer any longer. A continuation of the war would bring death to tens, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of persons. The whole nation would be reduced to ashes. How then could I carry on the wishes of my imperial ancestors? He asked his ministers to prepare an imperial rescript, a formal edict, that he might broadcast personally to the nation. The officials were not legally bound to do so. The emperor's authority lay outside the legal structure of the government, but by older and deeper bonds than law, they were bound and they set to work. In the meantime, Washington had grown impatient. Groves was asked on August 13 about the availability of your patience together with the time estimate that they could be moved in place. Stimson recommended proceeding to ship the nuclear materials for the third bomb to Tinian. Marshall and Groves decided to wait another day or two. Truman ordered Arnold to resume area incendiary attacks. Arnold still hoped to prove that the Air Force could win the war. He called for an all-out attack with every available B-29 and any other bombers in the Pacific Theater and mustered more than a thousand aircraft. 12 million pounds of high explosive and incendiary bombs destroyed half of Kumegaya and a sixth of Isezaki, killing several thousand more Japanese, even as word of the Japanese surrender passed through Switzerland to Washington. The first hint of surrender reached American bases in the Pacific by radio in the form of a news bulletin from the Japanese news agency Dome on 2.49 p.m. on August 14th, 1.49 a.m. in Washington. Flash, flash, Tokyo, August 14. It is learned an imperial message accepting the Potsdam Proclamation is forthcoming soon. The bombers dropped, droned on even after that, but eventually that day the bombs stopped falling. Truman announced the Japanese acceptance in the afternoon. There were last-minute acts of military rebellion in Tokyo, a high officer assassinated, an unsuccessful attempt to steal the phonograph recording of the Imperial rescript, a brief takeover of a division of Imperial guards, wild plans for a coup. But loyalty prevailed. The emperor broadcast to a weeping nation on August 15th. His 100 million subjects had never heard the high antique voice of the crane before. Despite the best that has been done by everyone, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, while the general trends of the world have all turned against her interest. Moreover, the enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is indeed incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. This is the reason why we have ordered the acceptance of the provisions of the Joint Declaration of the Powers. The hardships and sufferings to which our nation is to be subjected hereafter will certainly be great. 
we are keenly aware of the inmost feelings of ye, our subjects. However, it is according to the dictate of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is unsufferable. Let the entire nation continue as one family from generation to generation. Thank you, Sandra. That, that's a beautiful piece and you read it beautifully as well. So I really appreciate that. What's at the heart of this for you, Sandra? Why is this such a powerful piece? It had never occurred to me uh, that for war to end, someone has to accept surrender. Mm. I never thought about war from the standpoint of the losing party. And I never thought about the courage it takes to actually help uh, the battle stop. Uh, and, you know, obviously we are all thinking about what had been going on in Afghanistan yes. and the end of that terrible 20-year war, 20-year yeah. war. Yeah. Uh, and so I have actually used this particular example in a course that I teach, but the point to me really has been uh, the kind of moral courage that's required to stand for the interests of your group regardless of the conditions that you're in. Mm. As you've worked with students and executives, what have you learned about what it takes to nurture that moral strength? Because this is something you think you might be able to do in theory, but come the moment, it feels like there's all sorts of things, not only your own biology, working against that ability. How do you nurture moral courage? So I'll start narrowly thinking about uh, Emperor Hirohito, mm. uh, because there is a certain uh, school of thought that says that part of how you nurture moral courage uh, is through a sense of role obligations. Mm. Uh, and so he's in a very particular role. He's the emperor. Yes. Uh, he's been schooled in what it means to be an emperor mm. and has had decades to think about what that means. Uh, and so when the moment comes, uh, as hard as it is, he has a kind of a path between where are we now and what should the emperor of Japan do right now? Right. Now, as you can imagine, this was, he knew this was a fraught decision. I mean, mm -hmm. his privy counselor scurried to get that <laughs> leaflet into him so right. that they could intervene before the military uh, tried to get the masses up and mm -hmm. believing that this this battle could be won. So, so part of how you do that is you say, for the role I'm in, right. what is it that I'm expected to do? And that lends a kind of objectivity right. uh, to what can feel quite overwhelmingly personal uh, when you can start to abstract yourself and say, mm -hmm. in this role, the leader right. should be doing that. Right. You know, I, I think about the generals of the Japanese army and wondering whether they're, they're thinking in terms of how they might react, you know, what's my role as the, the general and how should I be doing that as well? So I can see there's a tension there depending on what role you're in. And I guess how well that role is connected to a bigger picture. 
Correct. And even within your statement, uh, different people will have different interpretations of what that bigger picture requires. Right. So if I'm a general, I win wars. Mm Mm-hmm. That is the nature of my obligation. Now, it's true that uh, actual Dwight Eisenhower uh, was not a fan at all of using the bomb. Right. Uh, and one of the stories that's recounted in this book uh, is he talks about the fact that he didn't believe it was necessary right. because the Japanese were already losing the war. Uh, and to him, it really mattered uh, who was first to use the bomb. And he right. didn't want the United States to be the first country to deploy it. There's a you know a, a new book by Malcolm Gladwell, The Bomber Mafia, is a very interesting conversation about the morality of bombing and and which of those is which different approaches and which is the lesser of two two or three evils, I guess, in terms of how to bomb that. Right. I I, I think you asked before about how you could prepare yourself. Mm for these moments. I, I think that uh, these are, uh, so I, I teach a course at Harvard Business School. It's called The Moral Leader. Yes. Uh, and it uses actually literature, novels and plays and historical accounts like this one uh, to help students come up with their own definition of what they think an act of moral leadership consists of. Right. So I'm not asking them to think about you're a moral leader of 724, you know, <laughs> uh, this is, if called upon, you call upon yourself to exercise moral leadership, what does that require of you? And what right. would that look like? Uh, and the reason I'm telling this is that for people who want to think about this, that's an exercise that people can do. Yes. And, you know, the best leaders who I know are very, very reflective about what it is that they think about their obligations, how they think about their aspirations for the kind Mm -hmm. of leader they want to be. And they prepare themselves by rehearsing events and going through things and saying, what did I learn from this? Uh, And trying to build this intuition about here's how I think an act of moral leadership looks like for me. I mean, there's a a famous quote, I'm not sure who, allegedly from a, a military source, which is, we don't rise to the occasion, we sink to the level of our training. I think mm. you're speaking to to some of that, right? Uh, but it, it, I think that that's a really good quote, though, because yeah. what I'm suggesting is that there's a level of work that you can do as an individual that helps you rise above your training. Right. How how do you navigate different morality? <laughs> because, like, I'm all very for. I'm very pro the moral leader if they have my morals and my morality and they see the world like I do. I'm like, exactly. This is how you serve the bigger game. This is how you serve the community. This is how you get vaccinated, all that sort of stuff. But I'm like, this is my sense of morally right. There's a bunch of people across the chasm from me who I disagree with around a range of different things who feel that they are morally right morally correct. Yeah. And that uh, description is a really important acknowledgement on your part, uh, because the most important thing to understand about morality is that this is intensely personal. Mm. And so what I regard 
as worth doing, worth defending, worth yeah. fighting for, uh, is very much built into how it is that I see the world and the kinds of assumptions I make about it. Uh, and so the first guideline for working across this chasm uh, is to assume good intent. Love that. Yeah. And to really say, even though I profoundly disagree with the premise of this individual, mm -hmm. they too are trying to do what they regard as right, right. Uh, and to at least give the other party credit, moral right. credit, uh, for having as positive intentions in their own way as you have. Yeah, yeah. Is there a practice or a way for me to continuing to expand and refine my understanding of moral leadership because the other thing i worry about is that my sense of what is right becomes ossified and you know i'm like you know i figured this out when i was 30 i'm now 53 <laughs> it's the same <laughs> and i'm wondering how you stay present to um the ambiguity and the grayness of what life is really like rather than the black and white certainty that a moral stance can somehow feel like you're you know you're holding the sword of righteousness and truth and life is always messier than that oh way messier than that <laughs> uh and i i think that uh, I, I'm not sure about this. I would propose that one way to think about that is the kind of content mm. of the moral decisions. Another thing that I work on really is the process of moral reasoning. Mm. Uh, that's so. So let me elaborate for a minute. Yeah. Uh, so so there are you know I'll I'll, I'll choose four uh, different ways to think about whether something is the right thing to do. Mm. So one right thing to do is consequence-based thinking. We do this right. all the time. That's the calculus that was going on in Japan, in the United States. If I do this, this will happen. Mm. Uh, and that's a moral reasoning because you're saying I can live with the consequences and I'm judging the consequences. And so the people who had second thoughts about incendiary bombing Yes. They were saying that's not something I'm willing to do or will right. not want to do given a choice. So there's consequence-based reasoning. Uh, there's reasoning based just on your basic responsibilities as a human being, one person mm. to another. Uh, and uh, and so I, I think that that's the reasoning that says people deserve to be treated with respect, yes. You know that people have lives that actually you should mm. be enriched and that you have an obligation to them just because they're another human yeah. to treat them as a human. Uh, there's the way of looking at what's the right thing to do through the lens of rights. Mm -hmm. You know, and do people have certain rights that you believe right. actually need to be respected and under what conditions? I've talked before about role obligations. Yes. That's another way to think about it. Uh, and finally, there are, you know, people do make their own communal sense about from a community standpoint, what's the thing that helps our community thrive? Right. So I've just described four or five, actually, yeah. different ways. And, and what uh, seems to help the students is to take the same decision uh, and to examine it from the standpoint of each one of these moral right. reasoning right. Right. processes. Uh, and what you find is that, you know, number one, you can argue almost any of them should you want to, <laughs> uh, but they shed light on very different things. Right. 
Yeah. And at the end of it, you at least okay. have a much more robust way of thinking about this decision and how to make it. There's no algorithm at the end right. uh, that, you know, that says put this together, but <laughs> yeah. it is a process yeah. that if you have the patience for it, it actually can help you make better decisions that at least you know you've been intentional about. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's a very powerful perspective, which is different perspectives increase the nuance of your understanding. And also the understanding of both for and against the position you might be taking. Um, Correct. Right. Because there's a way I think, you know, one of the other ways of, about doing this is to argue the case as strongly as possible against yourself, against your, your moral inc- inclination and see what like that also uh, sheds on, on the, on the, the crux, the, the moment that you're facing. Yeah, and I think that that's useful, very useful to do as an immediate check. But sometimes our ability to argue against ourselves is absolutely determined by how we think about things. That's right. Uh, and so right. that's why I feel some notion of opening yourself up to other ways of reasoning. Mm. Yes. Uh, actually creates more nuance than you would have, even if you just said, I'm going to play devil's advocate and I take the other side. No, I see that. So do you feel your own sense of moral leadership has changed at all since you started teaching this particular course and diving into this world? I I think what's changed, uh, so I have, just because I spent 20 years in business uh, and increasing levels of responsibility, uh, thought quite carefully about who I was as a leader pretty mm. much all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I believe in lateral leadership, meaning at any level, in any meeting, uh, you can help lead right. uh, the endeavor. And so I'm used to thinking of myself as a leader and have for a long time. Uh, I think what this has opened me up to is, is the idea that good frameworks, good ideas, that they actually make a difference. Mm. Uh, so there is such a sense of kind of, I have to figure this out myself. Yes. And because it's hard, I feel like no one can help me think about this differently. And what I've learned is to, I think, be not humble, but curious about, well, what ways help? Mm. You, you know, if and so that's why I wrote the book yeah. uh, with my colleague, Shalene, it, it's because trust was one of those areas where we all love the idea of it. Yes. But if you ask the next first question, which is, what do you mean by it? Right. Uh, and then let's even pretend you thought it was a good idea. What are you going to do about it? Yes. You know, you wouldn't come up with much. Uh, and so, and to me, that's taking leadership of a different kind. Yes. That's a kind of an intellectual leadership where it's like, I can, uh, I want to, and, you know, I have the advantage point of being an academic at HBS, so I have wonderful colleagues I can work things out with, literatures I can dive into, and I can have the money to go study companies. Yes. And so all of that creates this kind of obligation on my part. Well, what do I do with all that riches? Mm. You know, and, and my sense is, again, it's not giving back, it's just giving. Yes. Uh, and That's really wanting to use those resources for good. I wonder, Sandra, as you talk about this, the focus is on our individual ability to strengthen our sense of moral leadership. And 
you know, the metaphor I've, I've used in a different context about training people in general, which is like you can take the goldfish out and clean the goldfish, but if you put them back in the dirty water, you have a dirty goldfish pretty quickly. To, to what extent is the ability to have moral leadership in an organization determined by the structure and the culture and the, 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 the system itself? Is it possible to be a moral leader when a system is itself flawed? I, I think it's, so I'll answer two ways. It's always possible mm. to be a moral leader. I, I, I wouldn't want to sort of give myself a pass that right. say that just because I'm in a lousy organization, I somehow no longer have the responsibility to try to lead well yes. in ways that make sense to me. So uh, I think that that's true. But you know, the reason our book is actually written for uh, describing what companies can do to be yeah. trusted by their stakeholders. So we are, uh, by definition, at the level of systems and processes. That's right. From the companies you studied, uh, and you know, th I, I feel that the, your book about trust and this conversation about moral leadership are entwined. What do you? What have you learned about what organizations can do to increase the likelihood of trust and in increase the likelihood of moral leadership. And I know that's a, you've written a, a large book about this, so it's a vast question, but is there a, is there a, perhaps the better question is like, what's, what was most surprising about what an organization can do to shift the balance a little? Uh, so I'm going to answer a slightly different question, because uh, I'd like to be uh, helpful. Uh, and I, I think that question would lead to a certain path, which I think is helpful. I want to be quite a bit more explicit. So for all the people who are listening, mm. uh, if you're in an organization, and if you have authority uh, to help manage decisions, the first thing you can do to enhance trust is to stop laying people off. Mm. So it's very easy to have these discussions, as, and, and it's important to have them in the sort of a higher level of what are the systems and processes, and I'm a process person, I'm a quality person, you know, study quality by, by trade, uh, but of all the practices that erode trust from the inside of an organization, it's yeah. how casually we treat the lives of the people who work with us. Mm. Uh, and one of the surprising findings, not it was an intuition, but how strongly reinforced it was, is that trust really is built from the inside out. Right. That it's very difficult, not impossible, but really difficult to be trusted by people outside your organization uh, if the people inside the organization themselves mm. don't feel trusted and don't trust you in particular right. and the decisions right. that you make. Uh, and so, you know, fear will take you to a certain level, uh, but we know that we get different results depending on whether or not people inside the organization feel taken care of, mm. understood, and that their interests matter. And COVID has made that so clear to us all right, right. that now all of a sudden everyone's health and welfare is, this is now an organizational responsibility of all organizations. Yeah. Uh, and it's a way of saying that we care about, not just saying we care about people acting in ways that show that we either do or don't really take seriously other people's health and safety. Sandra, it's been a wonderful conversation with you. Thank you. Um, um, I, we barely touched on the new book. 
And I hope what that's done is made everybody who's listening here going, what else is in this book? Because it is a great book. Um, as a final question, um, is there anything that needs to be said in this conversation that hasn't yet been said? Uh, so, so th- I will just end with a story uh, that uh, that someone told me about the book, uh, and uh, so this is someone who needed to get fifty copies of the book to an organization. She was at the post office, uh, and she uh, and so she was asking the person, and she turned her back and was doing some work. She turned around, and he was reading the book. <laughs> And he said, this is so interesting. Uh, and so she gave him one of the copies of oh, the that's book. Great. Uh, and, uh, and so we tried to take this topic, which can either be very academic yeah. uh, or kind of silly in a way, honestly, uh, and to embed, it, embed in it stories of people and organizations, uh, because we know that the stories are actually the things that people remember. So yeah. hopefully if we can capture that person's attention, uh, we might be able to capture the attention of the people on the call as well. So I have to tell you, I had this moment of being swept back 20 or 25 years ago when Sandra mentioned Filene's Bargain Basement. I mean, I bought this amazing pale, double-breasted pearl suit made from this beautiful, fine Italian wool. It was so gorgeous that I actually never found time to wear it. And eventually I just gave it away. But but I digress. Before this interview, I'm not sure that I'd really ever considered the courage of the vanquished. Because when you're in a fight, you're holding on, you're holding, you're holding on to, to pride and to hope. I mean, your hope and the hope of others. But if you're lucky, you come back to remember, well, what the important thing is, what the big win is, really. You know, what victory really is. And so often that's to fight another day. And by fight, I don't really mean fight. I mean to live another day. You know, and I think that's what the the emperor of Japan realized, which is the true goal is for the Japanese people to live and to flourish. That's his sacred duty. What's the action that serves that sacred duty? You know, I've got this new book coming out, How to Begin, coming out in January. And in that is the idea of setting a worthy goal. And this insight about the journey and the destination and where am I really striving for continues to be essential. And failure is just part of what it means to take on a worthy goal. I mean, in some ways, that's how you know that you're actually doing the work, that you've taken on something thrilling and important and daunting. I love how Samuel Beckett said it, ever tried, ever failed, Try again, fail again, fail better. And on that (laughs) slightly down note, or maybe it's not for you, it's not for me, um, I just wanted to say thank you for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. I appreciate if you've managed to give me a review on your favorite app. I appreciate it if this episode or another episode has caught your attention and you've shared it with somebody, because word of mouth is definitely one of the ways this podcast will grow. You can find Sandra's books wherever you would buy books. I'd encourage you to use an independent bookseller if you have that choice. And you can find out more about Sandra and her work at sandrasucher.com. S-A-N-D-R-A-S-U-C-H-E-R.com. And many of you have joined me at the Duke Humphreys, which is the free 
private membership site. You can access it at mbs.work/podcast, and there's where you'll find just extra resources, some downloads, some favorite books, some interviews that I haven't released.、Um, Uh, just basically additional bonus stuff. So if you'd like to sign up there, we'd love to see you there. I think that's all. So I just wanted to say thank you. You're awesome, and you're doing great.